American History 101. Does that sound familiar to anyone? <laughs> American History 101, American History 102. I was a freshman at Jacksonville State University, and that was on my freshman lineup of courses. And uh, I didn't make A's in everything, but I made A's in that. Had a great professor. You know, the first time, you don't know how a professor is going to create the exam. And he had everything on, presented on his outline, and he tested exactly from that outline. So you know what I did the rest of the course. But it was a great, great experience. I soaked up the college-level American history. And, and it's the stories. It's not necessarily the motivation. You know, a lot of people try to put in what was Christopher Columbus' motivation but uh, you don't know people's motive and intent until they know their motive and intent because we don't know what's inside of the heart of a person, do we? We don't know what's inside of their mind. Why are they doing what they're doing? Unless they tell us, we're just guessing. But I love a church history as well. All the stories about that first generation and the following generations of believers living for the Lord, primarily surrounded by a hostile environment. As Paul would write to the Jews, the gospel of Jesus being crucified was a stumbling block, and to the Greeks it was foolishness. So he said on both sides of the equation, he said there was a pushback to the story of the gospel. But he said to those who were ready, it was the power of God unto salvation. Isn't that interesting? Three groups. One group looked at it as a foolish endeavor going against all logic and reason. The other group, it was an offense to them to think that there was a different way than what they were accustomed to. And then you had people whose hearts were seeking and searching for truth and the soil of faith. When that seed hit that heart, they opened their hearts and were born again. Born again, as John would write, not of blood, not of the will of man, not of the flesh, but born of God. In those formative years in, in the, the church, it was those people who were committed to each other. They decided that they could outlast that hostile environment if they stuck together, if they were one church, one group, one entity and that's how they made it through those difficult years. They encouraged each other. They prayed with each other. They had everything in common. I'm going to be reading here from Acts chapter 4 in just a moment if you want to turn there. But they gave up. Here's what the early church did. They gave up individualism. They gave it up. It wasn't about them. It wasn't about our individual needs. It was about the whole. And that's how they made it. They, you know, sometimes we want the miracle of Acts, but we don't like the model of Acts. And we want the power of God to do the miracles, but we don't foster the attitude that those people had about not only their devotion to God, but really and truly what set them apart was their devotion to each other. There was not an attitude. You didn't hear the attitude in the early church about, well, what about me? What about my happiness? That just wasn't there. Wednesday night I shared a message on um, divine providence and had a very interesting discussion with a young man afterwards. He was questioning me about the application of that, that truth. And uh, 
Obviously, we had a little bit, bit of a different take, but I was so encouraged that there was a young man that was asking questions about something, which let me know that he had an inquiring heart, a searching heart. I wished more people would come up and ask questions. Well, well that doesn't seem... How does that apply to this situation or that situation? Let me just give you what I shared on Wednesday night. Not that I'm going to repeat it. But I preached from the last sentence in the Declaration of Independence. And it reads like this. And for the support of this declaration, with a firm reliance on the protection of divine providence, we mutually pledge to each other our lives, our fortunes, and our sacred honor. Now, this morning is kind of like a part two. I'm not going to re-preach Wednesday night, even though I enjoy preaching that message Wednesday night. It'd be easier to preach it again. Uh, I, I could be following up last Sunday where we talked about we must obey God. And when we get to the scriptures, like, well, yeah, it's the same territory that we're in, the book of Acts. But I want to focus on those words, we mutually pledge to each other our lives, our fortunes, and our sacred honor. What, what they were saying, the 56 people who put their names on that document, we're putting everything on the line. Everything we are, everything we own is now on the table. We're leaving nothing. We're in, completely in. In fact, some of them left that meeting and went and joined their respective militias in those colonies and started fighting the actual defense of that declaration. A number of them were captured, not because they were signers of the declaration, but they were actually involved in the conflict and, and were overtaken in some of those battles and were put in prison. That, re, that could also be the, the dynamic of the first church, those who are first called Christians and by the way, you know they didn't call themselves Christians. They, called the, they preferred the term, we're people of the way. They were known as the way. Because the identity of Jesus being the way, the truth, and the life. They were first called Christians by outsiders. As a way maybe of reproaching them or, or saying, they look like they're following this person named Jesus. And so they were called Christians, I think, in Antioch. Well, let me read you what I think is kind of like the last sentence, the New Testament versions of the last sentence in the Declaration of Independence. It's Acts 4, beginning with verse 32. I think this is a biblical rendering of that last sentence that Jefferson ended that declaration with. Acts 4, 32, out of the NIV, it reads like this. All the believers... We're one in heart and mind. No one claimed that any of their possessions was their own. But they shared everything they had. With great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And God's grace was so powerfully at work in them that they were no needy people among them. That is an incredible statement, isn't it? It reads out like this out of another translation, the New American Standard. And the congregation of those who believed were of one heart and soul, 
And not one of them claimed that anything belonging to him was his own, but all things was common property to them. And with great power, the apostles were giving testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and abundant grace was upon them all, for there was not a needy person among them. And I would be amiss if I didn't read it out of the message. Eugene Peterson wrote it like this. I love this. The whole congregation of believers was united as one heart, one mind. They didn't even claim ownership of their own possessions. No one said, quote, that's mine. You can't have it. They shared everything. The apostles gave powerful witness to the resurrection of the master Jesus, and grace was on them all. And so it turned out that not a person among them was needy. And we're not told this exactly in this passage, but it's heavily implied that those who were open followers of Jesus paid a cost, paid a price for that. The cost could be like your personal life, like Stephen, but more than likely the greatest cost to these early disciples, these first generation of believers, was probably more economic and social than anything else. People would not do business with them. People would draw uh, connections from them. They wanted to isolate them. If you follow what happened in Nazi Germany, that's the first thing they did with the Jewish people. They wanted to ha- them to have a star on their sleeve. They wanted everybody to know who they were. They painted slogans on their businesses, and they called for people to boycott their businesses. They, they wanted, the first thing they wanted to put pressure on the Jewish community is to cut into their ability to take care of their families. And so most of them, before they ended up in concentration camps, ended up in slums where they were all located and overcrowded into places. But it started with Nazi Germany telling the people, do not do business with these people. And I think if, you would, if we would know what really went on in Jerusalem, that early Christians were targeted that stay away from them, don't have anything to do with them, will cut you off from all resources in the Jewish community if you became a follower of Jesus Christ. How do we know that was possible and probable? Well, let me take you back to John 9 just for a moment. The great story of a man that was born blind being healed. And you know the story. You know, the question with the disciples was, is this man, was this man born blind because of something he had done? You know, he must have been a bad baby while he was in development. I don't know how you could sin before you were born. But, or was his parents, did his parents sin? Was that the effect of blindness? And Jesus said, neither one. It, it's, it's an opportunity for the glory of God to show. And what Jesus did was kind of interesting. He spit on the ground and took his finger and made a little muddy paste with it. Probably the healing line around here would really thin out if we did that. But he made this paste and he, and he smeared it on this blind man's eyes. And then he told him to go wash off that mud in the pool of Siloam. So obviously he had to have some assistance to get there. But as soon as he washed the mud off of his eyes, his eyes were healed. 
completely healed. He had never seen before. He was born blind. And the commotion that was created out of this landed him in an interrogation-type setting with the Pharisees. And they wanted to know how that happened. First of all, he had broken a Sabbath rule because he washed the mud off his eyes on Sabbath. But when they found out that Jesus spit in the dirt and made mud, Jesus broke the Sabbath law. Now, think about the hypocrisy of this. These were people who gave children an exemption on taking care of their parents in their elderly years by saying, if you just say what what you have is dedicated to God, you don't have to help your parents. You don't have to honor your father and mother until they die. And yet they're going to contest something because somebody made mud and somebody washed the mud off on the Sabbath. Well, if you track the story, the story gets really interesting because this man's kind of like, he really don't care what they think about him because why, why do you think he doesn't care? He, <laughs> hey, y'all unhappy? Too bad. I can see that's all that matters to me. And he said that. He says, you know, you decide whether this, this Jesus is a legitimate person or a sinner or a prophet. I think he's a prophet, you know, because how can he do a miracle and be a sinner? And he said, but one thing I do know, I was blind and now I can see and that's all that matters to me. And in their frustration, they came to the point, and I'm just kind of giving this out in a narrative, they wanted to make sure this guy was actually blind. So they called his parents. The very people that they would give an out for their children not to take care of them is now interrogating parents and says, Is this your son? Yes. Was he born blind? Yes. Well, how did he get healed? Ask him. <laughs> we don't know. Ask him. He's an adult. He ought to be able to tell you. And the Bible says in John 9 that the reason they had this kind of a hesitancy to answer the question is because it had been announced by these same authorities that if you are found to be declaring that Jesus is the Messiah, we will kick you out of the synagogue. In other words, we will brand you like Nazi Germany branded Jews. People won't have anything to do with you. You'll be shut off socially, economically. If you had a business, you were a vendor, you had a product, you would be labeled, do not do business with this person. And so the parents, they weren't really wanting to step into this. It shows you how easily, just if Jesus did a miracle and they were telling people, we will... We will shut you out of all the benefits in our community if you even say that you believe. The first Christians, not one of them claimed that anything belonged to himself. Not anything belonged to him, but all things were common property to them and there was not a needy person among them. They made it, they survived because they were committed to each other. And even though we don't have a co-op like they did, that was, that was pretty interesting because they just, some of those had properties, sold their properties and pooled the resources and, and the, the apostles meted out. Nobody, nobody was left lacking. Isn't that a neat dynamic? There's not a co-op here, but the principle rings true. 
We make it in life because of our connection to each other. The sad thing is when people identify their church by location and by name, something is missing. If it's just the building we go to and the Assembly of God name or whatever, TFA, whatever we're labeled, if the location of that label is all there is to what we have as church, we are very poor in what we have. We are needy. Because it goes way beyond that, does it not? The relationships, the fellowship, we weep together, we laugh together, we rejoice together, we care together, we pray together, we're in the battles together. And that's what makes church so dynamic, the body of Christ. And the greatest danger to the church is selfishness. That's the greatest danger to the dynamic of the church is when people start thinking more of themselves. It is a, it is a contagious meism. That it's about me and my needs and what's going on with me. The church wasn't there for me when I needed help. And many times they're, they're talking about the institution, not the relationships. And one of the problems is, is how we identify as the people of God. Well, there was an aching spirit hiding in that first church. It was in the form of Ananias and Sapphira. It's very interesting that as we read near the end of chapter 4, where all these people who had properties were selling their properties, pooling their resources, and helping everybody that didn't have resources, and that there was no needy person among them. Talks about Barnabas selling some property and the very next chapter of the vision talks about Ananias and Sapphira. What was their sin? We said, well, it was dishonesty. They sold pro- property for so much. And you know, Peter in dealing with them didn't say selling the property was the problem. Not even what they got was the problem. What was the problem was they said they sold it for so much that they were giving, but they were keeping a portion back for themselves. Now, we can apply all kinds of things that's wrong with that, but it seems like whatever they were doing, God really thought it was bad. Because, I mean, you lied about what you sold it for, and you dropped dead. And Ananias first and then Sapphira came in afterwards, and both of them were struck dead right there in the church meeting. Because, here's what, because the aching spirit was hiding in their souls, and that would be a catastrophic thing to come oozing out into the body. And God eradicated it on the spot. Because they wanted people to think they were like everybody else selling their property and giving it while they were stuffing their own pockets with excess. You see, they didn't fit that nobody claimed their own possessions, right? They didn't fit that. They were claiming some of it And even 
And even Peter said, all you have to do is be honest. All you had to do is tell us that you needed this part for yourself. But you made it look like you were selling it for this amount of money. And you were lying to us. And he said their real sin was they lied to the Holy Spirit. You ought to put a note down. Do not lie to the Holy Spirit. I don't need to tell you what happened to him. And look over that. But here's the economic factor that, that showed up in the early church. You know, when the resources are cut off and you don't realize how difficult it is when we don't have realize how difficult it is Christians to have a decent job in a nation where we're in the minority. You, you, have, you and I have no idea how difficult it is for a Christian in Iran to get a good job. And even with this last terror attack in Bangladesh, Dakar, Bangladesh, and the news came out that the people who had held host, they were holding hostage, they could survive if they could quote a passage from the Quran. But the climate, we were told, was already becoming hostile to the minority religious community, primarily Christians. And that Christian businesses and people that that were believers were already being targeted for these kind of behind-the-scenes isolation. And the only way, the only way, it's like Tim Austin talking about in Fez, Morocco, city of a million people or more. You know, he was there as a missionary. They had one church, one church, one Christian church in Fez, Morocco. The Presbyterians, the Methodists, the Pentecostals, the Lutherans, no matter what it was, they all went to that same church and said sometimes the Lutherans had worship and sometimes the Presbyterians did worship and sometimes the Pentecostals did worship. (laughs) He said, because we realize that we can't make it separate. We have to lay aside our worship differences. How about that for a novel idea? We lay aside all of our theological differences for the sake of surviving in an environment that wants to snuff us out. And there was several hundred people in that church. That's how they made it. And that's how we make it. As for the support, today we celebrate July 4th, even though it's July 3rd. We're going to have a great time afterwards. But listen to that last sentence again. And for the support of this declaration with a firm reliance on the protection of divine providence, we mutually pledge to each other our lives, our fortunes, and our sacred honor. You've probably heard some of the stories of those men who signed that document. I'm just going to throw out one for you. A delegate from New Jersey, Richard Stockton. He was the son of a very wealthy New Jersey landowner and farmer, John Stockton. The Stockton family was very prominent in New Jersey. In fact, his dad donated land for the College of New Jersey to be built. That college is now known as Princeton. 
Richard Stockton lived in an estate in Princeton as a result of his connections with his wealthy father. He was a delegate elected to the Second Continental Congress. He became a lawyer, very gifted, traveled into Europe much, was on good terms with people in the parliament in England, even had an audience with King George III. He was, he was one of these men that just became prominent because of his, his faith and his devotion and his moderation. He was a moderate. He really wasn't ready to go to war with England. But as they raised the pressure and it was coming from overseas, his moderation got finally dissipated into, we got to do something. So he signed the Declaration of Independence as a delegate from New Jersey. It wasn't long after that, some loyalists raided his house in the middle of the night and dragged him out of bed. Loyalists were those people who were in the colonies that were against the Declaration of Independence, was pro-England, and they dragged him out and took him to the British and turned him over to the British. And he was in prison for a while, but while he was in prison, General Cornwallis decided to take up residence in the Stockton estate. Before it was all over with, all of his furniture, all of his possessions, his livestock, his fields, everything was either taken or destroyed. And Richard Stockton had one of the greatest libraries of those leaders in the colonies, and they burnt it to the ground. Now, they didn't do this because he was a signer of the Declaration of Independence. They did this wherever they found estates and homes. It was the way they fought against that American spirit. So he was finally released because of his good friend, George Washington, made a direct appeal to General Howe to let Stockton be released. He recovered some of it, but not much. And when he signed under that, we pledge together our lives, our fortunes, our sacred honor. It took his fortune. It took everything he had. His family was scattered. But it didn't take his sacred honor. Because time and again, they wanted him to recant and pledge allegiance to the crown of England. And he refused to. The message says again, and really what I'm, what I'm sharing with you is a call, friends, to a commitment to each other, a commitment to one another, to be true friends to each other. You know what true friends are, right? True friends. True friends can be honest with each other. Right? And when you hesitate to be honest with, with someone because you don't know exactly how they're going to take what you've got to say, they're not as quiet as a friend as you think they are. But if you can be completely open and know no matter how far off the radar what you have to say is, that they might not even like it, but it's not going to jeopardize your friendship. That's true friends. And do we ever need that today? And what I'm sharing is that we determine today not to sign our name underneath a statement, but to 
resolve in our hearts that we're going to be together. We're not going to just meet together. We're going to be together in life. We're going to share the challenges. We're going to share the needs. We're going to be giving. We're not going to let selfishness or our own needs dominate our lives. But we're going to trust God to meet us as we are part of his kingdom. The communion of the saints. Those who can be honest with you are the ones who love you the most. And I'm privileged to have people that's like that. Not my title scares them away. They can really approach me and say, you know what, I, I think you might ought to be doing something different in that regard. It's great. Not that I want you all to line up and say something like that <laughs> after service. That I can't wait for all of you to be just honest with me. But it wouldn't hurt to be honest, would it? Acts 4.32, the whole congregation of believers was united as one. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one church. One church. The mystical body of Christ. Paul, if you could come to the, the platform. You know, I love, I love theology. I love researching theology. I love reading. Ellie Weasel died yesterday at the age of 87. How many of you saw that? How many of you have read the book Night? I couldn't put it down. The lady at Panera Bread told me, oh, you're reading that? She said, yeah, I want to start on it this morning. She says, oh, I couldn't put it down. Three and a half hours later, <laughs> I left Panera Bread because I couldn't put it down. I thought about him, thought about what he endured as a Jewish man in a concentration camp, a, a Jewish teenager taken there as a teenager. His mom and sister was separated from him, and they knew the line that they put them in was the line heading to the gas chambers. And I believe someone said, you know, don't tell them your age. Tell them you're older. Because even the younger teenage boys were sent to the gas chamber because if they couldn't work very much. So he and his dad went to the work side of the concentration camp. His dad didn't make it. But his life story kind of commands us to say, you know, when I read that or when I read the heavenly man, I'm reading a book that says, I don't have any problems. I don't have any challenges to my faith. I don't, I'm not enduring anything. No matter what you face, when you read things like that, the heavenly man and, and night, you come to the conclusion, I ought to be able to be stronger in my troubles. And with God's help, we will be. And what I'm asking you this morning is to look around you and at least us say, I need to be closer to people. Someone asked me this week, what's the average age of your church? And I said, I don't know. I haven't calculated that. Maybe 40? I don't know. I said, we have older, and I'm now in that older group. 
I'm one of those that, that balances out a teenager to 40. And they says, well, that's unheard of. I said, well, I'm just glad we have a multi-generational body of believers. But even that is not necessarily a compliment if we don't interact. If we don't love each other and support each other and think about each other, respect the convictions of the older generation. And the older generation give the younger generation a little bit of room to grow and to become what God wants them to be, knowing that you have their back. I, th- I think it just boils down that we need to have each other's back. And not a relationship that says, well, I just want you to have my back, but, you know, if you need something, you know, you need to check out with somebody else. But it's mutual. When they said, we mutually pledge, we mutually pledge, whether it's Ben Franklin or John Hancock writing his signature in this huge script, or somebody like John Hart that didn't even live long enough to see the win of the revolution himself. Several of them didn't even make it through that war. But when they signed their name, they weren't joking or being wishful thinking. They knew that it was going to cost them something. And if we're going to be the kind of unity and communion It's going to cost us something. But it's well worth the cost, isn't it? Stand with me.